Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 143 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. This week's episode features a photographer that probably needs no introduction, Royce Bear. Royce is one of the pioneers of the modern movement of nightscape photography and runs the popular Facebook group Nightscaper. Royce also organizes and runs the annual Nightscape Photography Conference. Royce and I covered a lot of really fun topics this week, including learning to say no, um, how Royce got into night photography, Royce's Milky Way Nightscapes ebook, uh, our shared authorship of the Secrets from the Stars Kickstarter book, uh, the 2020 Nightscaper Conference in Kanab, Utah, Nightscape Ethics, uh, the importance of dark skies and the work of the International Dark Sky Association, and how to make night photography a more creative pursuit. Over on Patreon this week, Royce and I recorded some bonus material where we talk all about the innovations of the past 10 years that have made night photography more accessible and some concrete techniques to improve your night photography. We also talk about the use of uh, trackers for the night sky and what Royce recommends. All right, well, one quick announcement before we dive in. Former guest and Canadian landscape photographer Danny LeFrancois has announced a really fun opportunity to photograph the Canadian Rockies in the springtime. Her workshop will get you up close and personal with some incredible subjects in the Banff National Park area and looks to be like a really fun adventure. Just head to banffphotoworkshops.com slash spring dash awakening. Okay. Let's get to the show. Awesome, old Royce Bear. It's awesome to finally have you as a guest on the podcast. Well, thank you, Matt. Yeah, I've uh, when I first uh, sat down like two and a half years ago to think about people that I would want to have as a guest on the podcast, your name came to the top of the list pretty fast. So I'm really excited to finally have you here. Well, I'm sorry. It took me so long to get my act together and uh, reach out, reach back to you. Oh, no worries. Well, you're, you're, a, you're a busy man. <laughs> well, you, you know, we all, all are busy. Uh, but you know, we need to set priorities and, you know, in fact, that's, uh, something I wanted to talk to you about, uh, is maybe about goals. Um, in the last couple of years, I've been, uh, reading a book, uh, by a guy by the name of, uh, Greg McEwen. Uh, he, uh, he writes called the Essentialism is the title, the principle, the discipline pursuit of uh, less. And his name, he's a Brit. His last name is spelled M-C-K-E-O-W-N. There was a uh, podcast or blog just recently that featured uh, Chris Burkhart. uh, It was hosted by uh, Chase Jarvis. Oh, uh huh. And that was a that was an interesting a vlog. In fact, the title of that vlog was uh, "Say Yes to What You Want," and that's a direct quote from their vlog. And I might add to that that uh, saying no is saying yes to what you really want. In fact, he does say that saying no is saying yes to what you want. I would I would say I mean the my experience has been you know the further you take your photography career the more things that you start to think about saying no to. <laughs> well, isn't that the truth? You know, when we were um when we were young and dumb, I, I don't know, I'm still dumb. Uh, but I, I'm getting a little smarter. When when I first started out, uh, you know, we were uh, we were we had these grandiose ideas, but uh, then we started realizing you had to make money at this, and so you took just about every job that came your way. You later learned that uh, in order to be really successful. You, 
sometimes you have to turn down the immediate money-making jobs and start spending more time on long-term projects, you know, that you have a vision or passion for. You know, some of those projects don't make any money in the the beginning Mm -hmm. because those are the images that uh, boost your career the most. You know, for example, um, it could be taking time off uh, for a two-month road trip to to, to bo- do a book project. Have you done things like that, Matt? I wish. Uh, uh, the most time I'm usually able to get off of work is like maybe two weeks at a time. So um, I would love to take two months and work on a project. And I actually have several ideas for that, but it's you know it's hard when you actually have a full-time job and have a podcast and raising a family and things like that. <laughs> it really is. You know, I raised a family and, uh, and I thought that was interesting. Uh, Chris Burkard, um, I think he has three kids. Uh, you know, he's a husband, a father, a dad, uh, and has three kids and, uh, he's been able to, to do some of those things, but he went totally freelance at a early early beginning. So he didn't have a boss that said, you have to be here right. from nine to five a day. So he had some freedom, uh, freedom to starve to death, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and I think uh, there's a lot of people, I feel like that, um, you know, the timing was right in terms of where they, when they got really good at photography and when they decided to go full time, I think, there was, it was a pretty, uh, I don't know, a welcoming environment in terms of, you know, there wasn't a ton of competition and there was a, there was a heavy appetite for, for, um, that kind of style of adventure photography. And I feel like if, if though a lot of those people were to, to try to do that again today, they probably wouldn't have as much success. Although I'm just speculating, but it's just, seems like it's pretty saturated now. Yeah, I think you're right in a lot, lot of ways. Um, you know, I was uh, I was freelance for for over thirty years, and um, it's oftentimes ruled by fear. But I think that uh, even a person in your situation, and most of the people in their situations, you know, that have a a, a real job, that you can do things that. Um, you can do projects that uh, and do some planning that will um, put you in a position to get your work out there. They are projects that are not uh, going to be super lucrative, but if they're planned well and you have a passion for them and you continually put work into them, they're eventually going to pay off in some subtle ways where people, the right people will see those images and it'll really, really help you. So I think uh, I think something. this is something that everybody should uh, spend some time on. And don't, don't allow yourself to get so saturated and doing everything everybody else wants for yeah. you. So, <laughs> you know, learn, learn how to say no is learning to say yes to what you really want. I'll give you an example. I did a three-month, almost four-month road trip book project uh, back in early 2014 to do my uh, ebook, uh, Milky Way Nightscapes, you know, which has been a bestseller and has really uh, helped mm, carve out my niche of who I am and built my reputation. But I actually took three months off from doing my regular freelance work to write and promote that book while doing a 15-city speaking tour. That means I hit five cities every every month. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was pretty grueling. <laughs> so I wrote much of that book in the hotel rooms while <laughs> giving free lectures each night and often I'd do two or three lectures a night, you know, in adjoining cities. Wow. So, you know, you would go into, would go into an area 
Northern California around the Bay Area, and I'd do three lectures in one night. That's crazy. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it's funny. I was listening to uh, to a podcast. Um, I believe it was, gosh, it was um, the Candid Frame. Uh, he was speaking with uh, a Nikon sponsored photographer. Corey Rich, I believe is who he's talking to. And one of the questions he asked him was like, what do you attribute your success as a photographer to? And, you know, he was like, well, it's not my, it's not necessarily my, my photos. I was just, I just worked a lot harder than the guy next to me, <laughs> which I was like, yeah, that, that kind of <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> you know, like there, if you, I mean, if you think about people that are successful in this industry, it's often not the people with the best photos. It's often the people that have you know, put in the hard work and the sweat equity to kind of, you know, bring bring their vision to reality. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know, that, uh, that book hadn't even been written. I was, uh, you know, doing that on the road and giving those free lectures and hadn't even finished the book yet, which was kind of a good thing because every time I did a lecture, you know, I left about 15, 20 minutes at the end for questions. And uh, many of those questions became chapters in the book. So <laughs> yeah, that thank makes you out there. And uh, I really appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, um, one of the first things I wanted to ask you about was uh, obviously you've kind of carved out this uh, niche of night photography. In fact, I remember when I was first starting out as a photographer, um, I was also really interested in night photography. And I remember a uh, Google Hangouts you did on Google Plus with, I think it was like Ben Canales and David Kingham and you and a couple other people. And it was just all about night photography. And, um, you know, it was pretty new in terms of, you know, people getting into it. And, uh, I was also getting really into night photography back then as well. So I, I wanted to know, like, how did you even get into night photography as a photographer? Like, how did you start start out in that area? I just woke up one night and uh, realized that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, it all started back in the, in the early 80s. I was a... Uh, commercial advertising and industrial annual report photographer. And I, I'd get these uh, assignments. Well, what I wanted to do was to go out and take the studio lighting studio with the big studio strobes and everything on location and really light things correctly. Typically would shoot available light uh, in some of these industrial situations, and it didn't look that great. You know, film film doesn't have as much latitude, uh, dynamic range as digital does. Uh, it, it's only seven stops, whereas uh, digital, you know, you've got digital cameras that have up to 12, 14 stops, you know, mm -hmm. with Photoshop and uh, the camera raw and all that. So in order to compress that, you had to do some some uh, artificial lighting. So I got this idea of going down to the national parks, particularly in Arches National Park, and lighting up some of the major arches at night with studio strobes with batter with uh, studio strobes that were battery powered, and. Uh, that really came out cool. You know, it got published in major magazine photo magazines. And basically was a ploy to uh, show that if I can do this, you know, on location uh, at this 200 foot high arch or uh, imagine what I can do in your industrial location, or, uh, business location. Mm. And it, it really got me a lot of work. Now, unfortunately, in those days, uh, I had to do star trails had to do a 10, 10, 20 minute time exposure star trails. Right. And in, in those days, you, you know, film doesn't build up noise like digital does. Right. So you'd go for eight hours and it wouldn't build up any noise. You had reciprocity failure, but you didn't have a noise buildup. So you do a long exposure and you'd start at about 50 minutes after sunset in the end of the blue hour period 
and then you would go into the um, nautical twilight and you'd fire all your flashes and uh, and build up the the exposure the hard thing about that is you you really had to plan that out well mathematically because you only had one shot if you wanted to bracket your exposures you had to set up three cameras <laughs> right <laughs> um, it uh, you learn to be you know to really plan things out so that's how i started out uh, it wasn't until the oh you know about 2008 2009 2010 that digital cameras were capable of doing a single exposure in the astronomical dusk and do a, an exposure short enough with a high enough ISO to get the stars as points of light. Right. As we see them with our eyes. Right. right. And uh, boy, that, w- that was amazing. You know, uh, some of the early photographers like Ben Canales uh, really inspired me because he was, he was shooting some of that stuff in 2009 and I caught a glimpse of some of the stuff that he had done and, and some of the stuff that a couple of other people had done and it really inspired me. And uh, once I started getting into that, the rest is history. And then I decided to write the ebook, uh, uh, Milky Way Nightscapes, which has become a bestseller. In that book, I talk about stationary lighting. Uh, I still like to do lighting where um, artificial lighting uh, were needed uh, so that I can do it all in one exposure. In other words, I do uh, stationary lighting that is on during the whole uh, time period Mm -hmm. of the exposure. So if the exposure is 20 seconds, the light is on during that whole time. We, we had some national parks that started giving pushback on that. And one of my um, workshop attendees, Wayne Pinkston, came to me and he says, you know, I, I really like this style of lighting, but uh, you call it c- constant stationary lighting. I think we ought to make another term for it that's more descriptive to what it is, and it'll help us get better acceptance into the national park. And I said, well, what are you thinking of? He says, how about low-level landscape lighting or LLLL? And I said, well, how about just shorten it to low-level lighting, you know, LLL? And uh, so that's what we decided on. And uh, so he, he took that even further, and he was the inspiration for LLL. And uh, not everybody likes artificial lighting, but if you do it right and you do it very subtly, um, it can be very beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly it's certainly a lot more uh, a lot more tasteful than you know simple light painting or using like a headlamp or whatever. And and like you said before too, like you have tons and tons of control over the final result, especially with really low level lights that, you know, spread the light more evenly across the subject. I mean, I had Wayne on the podcast, gosh, two years ago now. And if you look at his gallery of images, there's really, he's got some really amazing stuff in there. He does. And uh, Wayne has taken this to a whole new level and, and he's very prolific. Um, He's a retired radiologist, I believe, and uh, so he goes out and shoots uh, probably seven, eight months out of the year, and um, he just pumps them out. <laughs> and some people may not like that style. It's it's interesting. Um, he was at a national park. He told me this experience, which has been my experience, but I'll share it from his perspective because I thought it was really funny. Um, he was at a national park with, uh, I think, two or three other people. And uh, a uh, it was like an NBC film crew came in with this uh, still photographer and they were going to do this um, 
this setup and uh, they, they were doing regular light painting and nothing was working. And uh, Wayne says, uh, excuse me, but could, you know, uh, maybe we could try another way. And uh, the other still photographer with the NBC film crews just really got mad. <laughs> and, uh, and Wayne says, well, why don't you just, why don't we just try it? And uh, see if you like it. You know, you can just at least look at it and try it. The guys, uh, the guy says, "Well, okay, you you can try it. Uh, I'll give you a couple of minutes." And he says, "Go ahead and start." And he says, "Well, the lights are already set up. Just," uh, he says, "Where? I don't see anything." He says, "No, no, they're on. That's why it's called low level lighting." And it says it takes your eye, even your eyes, uh, you know, 20 minutes to adjust to see it. Uh, but your camera will see it. Go ahead and, you know, fire off a still shot. And the NBC guy just started going crazy because he he was filming immediately when uh, Wayne had first said that. And he started screaming, this is fantastic. <laughs> oh, man, this is just what we want. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I don't, I mean, it's not rocket science. I mean, I, I was experimenting with something similar when I first started night photography. I would take my headlamp, but then I would like, you know, put it in my tent, but then I would cover it up with a bunch of clothes so that you could barely see any light. Um, and then, you know, then I would take a long exposure of the tent under the stars and, you know, the tent wasn't all washed out or anything like that. So it's just a matter of controlling the light so that it's nice and even and, and diffused, you know? You are, you are so right. And there's so many things that you can, you know, there's so many new lights out that you can really dim them down. Um, the, oh, what is it? The, the cube. Oh yeah. The loom the, cube. The loom cube now can, uh, s several of their products can really go low. I, I didn't like the loom cubes when they first came out because they weren't controllable enough to get down to the low levels. But they they've got diffuser attachments. The but the the main thing is they can go down way low. In the beginning, Wayne um, Wayne's best uh, accessory product was a pocket full of McDonald's beige light brown napkins. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> that makes sense though. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, you know I ought to put in my definition of uh, what nightscape photography is. I mean, as you know, first of all, I'm certainly not the one who coined this phrase, but I, I'm one of the more prominent astro landscape photographers who started this style about a decade ago. But there are many others that uh, I looked up to and followed. Instead of just photographing deep space objects through a telescope, we're photographing a you know, a wider view of the of the nightscape, especially the Milky Way. And we try to include an earthly landscape foreground uh, to create a relationship. Now, that foreground is sometimes enhanced with moonlight or an additional starlight from a second exposure or even artificial light in this LLL for better recognitions. And we're preferring to photograph the stars as points of light as your eye naturally sees them, um, not star trails. So for somebody that's new to this, uh, that's what my definition is and the definition of uh, many other photographers out there. They're doing this style of work. Did, so I thought I'd throw that in. Do you do you know who coined the phrase, Nightscape? Oh, boy, it's it's been a long time. You know, in my ebook, I I did that. Uh, the first couple of pages, I went into the definition, so I probably helped coin that. Uh, I mean, it solidified, but I certainly didn't coin the phrase. And it's been so long; I I don't think we you know, we'd have to go through the internet <laughs> uh, an internet archaeological dig to right. this out. Well, if anyone's listening and wants to take up that project, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's so many different styles out there. Uh, you, 
both you and I are contributing to a, a new book, a new hardbound book that it's called Secrets from the Stars. Yeah. Um, that's currently um, in the Kickstarter stage right now. Uh, it's being published. Uh, this is his third book. Um, I hope I don't kill his Spanish pronunciation. Uh, Rojidio Bernal, uh, he runs Deep Sky Colors as his company. And this is his third third book, I think. And he did one more notes. I think it was Notes from the Stars, which uh, was a real good seller. This is kind of follow up on that Secrets from the Stars. Uh-huh. We, you and I, uh, there's eight chapters in the book. You and I are doing a chapter each. Um, some of the other people that you might recognize that are writing chapters are Ben Canales, uh, Sean Parker, uh, Joshua Snow and Daniel Greenwood. And each of those comes at this at a different perspective, and they emphasize different things. I'm going to be talking about low-level lighting. Um, What are you talking about, Matt? Yeah, I'm going to be writing a chapter on night photography that is true to experience. And the way that I try to describe that to people. And I can't really take a whole lot of credit for it. It was um, kind of born out of a conversation I had while driving to the Grand Canyon with my friend, Michael Bellino. Um, I was driving and he was riding in the passenger seat and we were having a really in-depth conversation about, you know, composites and, and, you know, the everlasting conversation of quote unquote fake photography or however you want to call it. And, and he he kind of kind of changed my perspective a little bit in that um, you know it, it's less about like what's real or fake. It's about what is true to the experience that you had as a photographer. So so that's that's what my goal has been with my photography for the last couple of years, and um, and that's kind of what I want to write about in in this book chapter. Oh, I think that was so cool. No, thanks. Yeah, it's. Um, Obviously, uh, <laughs> with night photography, it's it's kind of a challenging subject because uh, I think anyone who's ever taken a picture of the night sky with a relatively recent camera setup, I think you realize that you know the camera sees a lot more than your naked eye can see. Uh, so, just in that particular reference point, it's hard to say that that is exactly true to experience, but. Um, it's not, it's, you still see the stars. You still see a faint, uh, Milky Way with the naked eye, especially if you're in a really dark sky area. Um, and you know, my idea is I want to, I want my photos to just be as true to the actual experience that I had so that it conveys something that somebody else can also go experience, um, if they wanted to do that as well. So that's kind of what I'm going to be writing about. And it, for me, it kind of harkens back to, the early days of landscape photography with uh, Ansel Adams and his group called F64. I'm actually reading his biography right now, and it's really interesting hearing about uh, the origins of quote-unquote straight photography. Um, And even back then, there was a huge debate about (laughs) realism versus fake images, and it was basically born out of... um, landscape painters um they were called pictorialists and there was a movement in photography called pictorialism where they wanted to emulate those landscape paintings like edward or like from albert bierstadt and others and uh, you know where basically you just kind of create something from nothing in your in your photographs and ansel was kind of the one of two photographers that took a stand against that um, back in the early 1930s. Um, so it's interesting that this kind of idea has kind of gone back and forth for basically almost a century now. <laughs> it is. You know, I think that's a great subject to to bring up. And this book will have a wide variety of opinions and styles. So I, I think there's something there for everyone. But you know, being true to the experience is uh, 
is neat. A lot of people say, well, can you really see the Milky Way with your naked eye? Well, you get in a Bortle class one or two and boy, it's very easy to see the Milky Way. Exactly. And, and, and you and I just want to share that experience with people. And anytime we can do a single exposure to get that, uh, boy, I'm all for it. But occasionally because of, um, you know, the extreme dynamic range of a nightscape scene, um, you know, we have to do a second blended exposure. We have to do stacking to reduce the noise and we have to do tracking maybe to make the stars a little sharper. And so, you know, there, there are things you have to do. And I, I'm a little concerned about some people who say, well, you know, you guys Photoshop that. Well, <laughs> you know, Photoshop is just an editing tool. Um, if you look at Ansel Adams, uh, let me just say one thing that exposure is an editing tool. You over or underexpose a scene and you're, you're editing, you're manipulating. And Ansel Adams with his zone system was a was a great person in in doing that. You look at his uh, famous scene, what is it called? Moonrise over Hernandez down in mm-hmm. New Mexico. Mm-hmm. If you take that, an original negative and just make a plain contact print, I mean, that thing is so blasé. And then you look at what he did to darken the sky and bring out the clouds and then bring out the foreground detail in the buildings, uh, it's just amazing. I mean, his zone system, you know, the negative had everything there. It's just like a raw uh, digital exposure, but it required his printing and a manipulation in the darkroom with uh, concentrated dectaled print developer and all kinds of things to to make that print. If you, he'd take these China markers on a, he would make a a final print and then he would circle areas and say, this is two times burning. This is eight times burning. This is holding back here and there. And, um, you know, he had a vision for, he saw it in his eye and this is what he wanted to do. This was the experience that he had that was his experience, what he saw, and he was trying to get that from the negative in the print. So to me, that's being true to the experience. But taking a bunch of images and combining them together from different locations, uh, that's not true to the experience. No, it's not. And I mean, honestly, like in terms of... Um artistic uh expression or or whatever I, I mean there's definitely value in that approach as well i don't think there's i mean we've killed this horse to death on the podcast but um i think what's going to be really cool about this particular book is that there's going to be a wide range of opinions and techniques and strategies in terms of how people approach photographing the night sky um and including people that full-on composite from all kinds of locations and times of year and all that stuff um, and down to, you know, people like yourself who are using low level lighting to, to bring out some of the foreground details. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to see that kind of wide range of, of artistic expression and how people articulate uh, how and why they do their style of photography the way that they do. You know, I think it will be too. And, I get so much enjoyment um, out of seeing the vision of other people and learning from them. I I learn from everybody that uh, I run into. And in fact, for years, I did a blog called Your Photo Vision. And uh, I need probably later this year, I'll start that blog back up um, because I love to highlight the the vision of other people and how they express themselves uh, because we can learn from everybody. Uh, my vision or my uh, mission statement is to really help others see the beauty and majesty of the starry night sky. 
viewed from that perspective of an earthly foreground feature. I mean, it is so inspiring to me, uh, and it's inspiring to a lot of other people, whether you're a creationist or a, you know, a hardcore scientist or both. Uh, I think people find that very inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, there's a story uh, I'd like to share that happened to me uh, about a year and a half ago. I was um, on a river trip, about a one week river trip. And uh, we were down in the in the Grand Canyon, bottom of the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River. Mm. And uh, after the first night we woke, that's a Bortle Class 1 area where we were. So the the Milky Way is very vivid. And uh, if you can't get a decent shot in that area without very little manipulation, you're a pretty poor photographer. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But the, the next morning, I think about three people in our group came up to the river guide and they said, um, you know, last night there was this strange cloud thing in the sky and it just stood there and hovered in one place. Did did any of you see that? And the guide just kind of laughed and he said, the, that was the Milky Way. Have you never seen the Milky Way? <laughs> And more than 80% of the people in the United States have never seen the Milky Way with their naked eyes. Isn't that a shame? That's uh, fascinating for sure. I mean, that's why I'm a big proponent of, you know, the, the Dark Sky Association and preserving areas uh, to keep, you know, to reduce light pollution. I'm actually on uh, the planning commission here in Durango, Colorado for the city and one of the the building requirements that um, we've implemented through the city is, you know, that that the lighting plans for new buildings have to be dark sky compliant. So um, I think it's important not only just for being able to see the night sky, but there's all kinds of other things that you know dark skies has an impact on, whether it be uh, the migratory behavior of birds or um, wildlife or even like sleep patterns of humans. So there's all kinds of p- great arguments for preserving night sky. <laughs> there really is. And I'm a big advocate of IDA, you know, International Dark Sky Association. And, you know, we as uh, red-blooded Americans, uh, we don't like being told what to do. And so th- that just sounds like more regulation to a lot of people. And, uh, I like to compare good night lighting to uh, driving down the road and somebody's coming at you with their um, their brights on, their bright headlights on, and they don't dim them. You can't see the road with that glare, and you're unsafe. And, uh, you know, certainly you want to dim those lights as you get close to the next vehicle. And and that's really all we're talking about, that most people are using five to ten times more light and in an inappropriate way to um, light their, you know, their backyard and, and so on and so forth and their streets. Now, we hear people say all the time, well, you know, it, it's been proven that uh, more light makes things more safe. No, it hasn't been proven if that was true, New York and La- Las Vegas would be the safest cities in the world. Right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy how much light. I mean, if you look at uh, the differences of certain cities, even just from the air, like Flagstaff, who's had a dark sky ordinance for, for a long time uh, versus, uh, versus larger cities of, or cities of the same size who don't. Like, it's pretty interesting to see the the light pollution that that's occurred from that you know some of these uh, smaller towns and cities uh, in Colorado and Arizona and around there are really setting the example of how to set up city ordinances that 
will benefit everybody, keep the light pollution down, but still be great for everybody. I, I had an experience just a couple of months ago. Uh, I guess it was three months ago. I was in uh, uh, on the Oregon coast, and I took my drone there to do some flying around the city of um, Cannon Beach. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's a fun area to shoot along the to photograph along the coast. And uh, I checked the local ordinances and you couldn't fly, you couldn't launch your or fly over the state park regions. I like to shoot at Ecola State Park, which is just north of Cannon Beach, just a beautiful wild beach area. So you had to launch from a another beach and then fly along the coastline, but stay outside of the boundaries. And I found out before I went that you couldn't fly within a half a mile of Haystack Rock, which is, you know, the main feature there at Cannon Beach. Right. And the reason is because this is a migratory seaboard, seabird refuge and they're nesting birds on Haystack Rock. So you have to be at least 2,640 feet away from that rock. And so, you know, I comply with those regulations and I think it's a good thing. (laughs) But then I went out to photograph Haystack Rock that night and uh, the hotels are 800 to 1,000 feet from that rock. That area would typically be a Bortle three. And it's more like a Bortle 5 or 6 there on the beach at Haystack Rock because of all the unshielded light coming from those resort hotels. And what is that? You know, we're we're regulating the, the drones, but we're not regulating the light pollution, which is upsetting those migratory birds. Uh, studies have shown that in cases like that, they'll sometimes nest and lay their eggs and hatch their eggs a month before they should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a real problem, but I don't think many people that uh, maybe don't follow the International Dark Sky Association they don't they may not just be aware of some of some of what light pollution actually does, not only for our photography but for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, I was really kind of wanting to talk to you about uh, kind of, you know, the ethics behind being out in the field um, as a night photographer, not only for single exposures, but just in general, like what are some of the things that you see people doing that maybe they shouldn't be doing? (laughs) You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I have a saying on ethics that says uh, it's basically can versus should. Mm -hmm. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. And, uh, you know, I was uh, up in the Palouse Valley of Eastern Washington uh, about a year and a half ago conducting a workshop. And I had gone through for a couple of weeks going around getting permission from all these farmers to be able to use their barns and be able to photograph on certain things. And we had this uh, one barn that I was going to photograph, but we didn't, we were able to be on a county road rather than um, being on his property. So there seemed no reason to ask permission, but I decided to go do it anyway. Uh, Maybe that was a big mistake because he adamantly said no. Well, he couldn't stop us from photographing his uh, barn with the Milky Way. I mean, his barn was just fantastic and the lineman was perfect uh, because we were on a county road uh, adjacent to his property and um, we didn't have to get his permission. But, you know, as in all cases, I asked for permission anyway. And he said no and said that he'd had some really bad experiences just last month where a workshop group of about 14 people just walked all over and walked right into his yard. And 
were just so uncouth and so unkind and inconsiderate. And he says, you know, I, I never want you people around here again. And so, no. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll agree to that. And we, we won't shoot. And uh, the photographers in, in the workshop that I was conducting, they were very disappointed, but they all agreed that that was the right thing to do. And uh, I hope that people realize that just because you can doesn't mean always mean that you should. Mm-hmm. We need to consider the feelings of other people. Uh, I'll go into an area where I want to do some uh, low-level lighting, and uh, people will say, and I'll ask every, if there's anybody there, I'll ask them, is okay if we do this? I think you'll really like it. And there have been some that said, no, we don't want that. Um, and, and you need to cooperate. And uh, there's, a, there's a photographer that's putting together a um, kind of a petition that's going to be presented our, at our Nightscape conference. His name is Matt. And he would like to ask the, the National Park to set up a system of, you know, maybe odd even days where on odd days you can do uh, viewing of the stars and photography of the stars without any artificial light. And on even days you can do it with. Um, I think that's a great idea. Uh, Some of the national parks like Arches National Park and Canyonlands and and Natural Bridges National Monument uh, they have put out the policy starting this year, 2020, that uh, no artificial light whatsoever, mm-hmm. period. And and I can see the reason for that, and I can see the abuse that has led up to that. I think they're, you know, <laughs> they're in the right mind doing that. Uh, we've caused these problems ourselves, but we can fix them mm-hmm. with... Uh, being more cooperative and kinder and more ethical. What's your opinion on that, Matt? Yeah, I guess I, I kind of, in my the way I think about that kind of stuff kind of bleeds over from the way I live my life and think about politics and all that kind of stuff in non-photography life. And that is, you know, if, if your behavior is having a negative impact on anyone other than yourself, then it probably needs to be addressed in some way, whether that be public policy or, or some, some form of approach to limit the impact on other people. But if it's just impacting you as your, as you just yourself, then I don't really care. Like if, um, but so, so I agree. I think it's a difficult challenge in terms of, you know, public lands and national parks, because, um, one can and should make the argument that those places are for all of us to use and enjoy um, within reason, I think. And I, so I, I, I think that uh, an approach like that where you have some compromise makes a great deal of sense. I actually remember maybe a year or two ago, a friend of mine, uh, Mike Berenson, he's a, a night photographer from Colorado here. And I remember he had posted a thread about the national park system wanting to uh, ban uh, artificial light in the national parks. And I think I was one of the only people that kind of came out and said, well, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that because, you know, if it's, if it's affecting other people's experience of the park, then, you know, it probably shouldn't be allowed um, carte blanche. So, so I like the idea of a compromised approach to that because obviously you're never going to make everyone happy. So I think something like that makes, makes some sense. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think uh, that both arguments have valid points. Um, there are people out there that are, are very offended by light painting in their national parks. And uh, I can see why. And uh, maybe a compromise will allow both you know, maybe odd even days 
uh, we'll see if that uh, petition will fly. That's going to be presented at one of the roundtable discussions at uh, our Nightscaper conference that's is coming up uh, May 20th through the 22nd in Kanab, Utah. We have about uh, 300 like-minded people coming there, and uh, we've got about 33 speakers. It's going to be two months after the uh, Outsiders Landscape Conference, which is in the same city, using the same <laughs> facilities there in Kanab. Yeah, Kanab's a great location. Uh, what, what all? Uh, who all do you have coming, and what are some of the uh, the topics that you're hoping to kind of explore through that conference? We we've got a ton of uh, photo- uh, topics that uh, are going to be having there. Uh, we've got guys like. Uh, uh, Yuri Belinsky, uh, Alan Dyer from Canada, Derek St- Sturman, Mike Shaw, uh, Russell Brown from uh, Adobe, hmm. Brad Goldpaint. Mm-hmm. Some of the some of the speakers there. It's for three days. Uh, let's see who are the uh, some of the others that I can think of. Uh, Jack Fusco, Ron Risman. Uh, you know who is um, a time-lapse guy, uh, Mark Tuso, uh, Toso, who was doing an ancient sky things, you know, kind of an archaeological thing, a duo of uh, Eric Benedetti and uh, Byrony Richards, uh, that, that's Utah astrophotography. They just teamed up uh, this, this last year. I've uh, got Mike Taylor, um gonna gonna be doing a lot of stuff of of main photography uh, uh Roger Clark is kind of a scientist and controversial some people but he is be talking uh, some interesting stuff that uh that I think a, a lot of people will will really like um at least you know sink their minds into uh Mike Barrison who you mentioned Aaron King, David Kingham, um, just just to mention a few others. David Swindler, you know, who lives in that area. Miles Morgan, uh, you've you've interviewed uh, Miles here before, a great photo- landscape photographer. Yeah, I was going to say, He's gonna, I think I've had about half of those people on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Miles is just a real interesting guy. I love his photography. He's not going to be doing the nightscape type photography that we normally think of. You know, he's going to be talking about finding variety in the night sky. You know, not not everything has to be the Milky Way core. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got several women that are speaking. Jess Santos uh, is going to be speaking uh, Christina Kenyon uh, is going to be speaking. Um, a good mix. Uh, there's something there for for everyone. Um, you can learn more about that by going to nightscaper.com. Cool. So nightscape with an R at the end, nightscaper. Awesome. Well, yeah. one of the things you brought up um, around, uh, you know, what Miles is going to be talking about, in terms of, you know, keeping it interesting or looking for something unique uh, is a perfect segue because one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about and pick your brain on um, kind of kind of harkens back to last week's episode, which at the time of this recording hasn't come out yet, but um, for people will know what I'm talking about if they listen to last week's episode. Um, and we had a panel discussion with... Uh, Guy Tal and Sean Bagshaw and Alex Noriega and uh, Suzanne Mathia and David Cobb. And we were talking about photo education and uh, creativity. And it was interesting because uh, Alex Noriega, who is probably my favorite photographer personally, he, he got to talking about um, well, we were all talking about, you know, what makes something creative and Guy Tal has written a lot about like, there's three different things that kind of drive creativity or what defines creativity. And one of them is kind of this idea of surprise and, um, or something that's, uh, maybe innovative or unique or different. 
And one of the arguments that Alex put forward related to night photography specifically in that he doesn't find much night photography to be all that, um, I guess you could say creative if you use that definition of kind of bringing amount of surprise because, you know, it's, and his argument was, you know, you're always going to, you know, there, there's the Milky Way core, you know, it's, it's very predictable. It's very, it all starts to kind of look similar. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is from kind of your perspective, how do you keep your night photography fresh or creative knowing that, you know, there's only so many ways you can combine the Milky Way or the night sky with, with, with land-based objects? Boy, that that really brings up a good point. First of all, I'd like to say that um, uh, I love deep sky astrophotography, but you know, there's only so many ways you can look at those constellations and nebula, uh, and, and they're beautiful and inspiring. But uh, there's no relationship there, at least with nightscape photography. You've got a foreground that. Um, gives a perspective and a relationship. You know, you've got an earthly foreground. So that right there, um, in some ways, blows Alex's um, uh, feelings and definitions out of the water. As you change those uh, foreground compositions and subjects, that that really makes the change, uh, really adds interest to me. Another thing is that photographers, you see photographers that don't go out and shoot the Milky Way or the night sky unless it's, you know, a new moon period. Right. And come on, you know, I I tell people that's when you need to, you know, in my book, I said, you know, there are at least seven days that you can go out and get the best results, you know, be uh, as you, as you lead up to the new moon, there's three days before and three days after. That's a total of seven days. Well, that's for maximum darkness and contrast. But that doesn't mean that it has to be that way. Brad Gold, Goldpaint is going to be talking about photographing the, the Milky Way with with moon, you know, with, with moonlight. Get, photographing your um, exposing your foregrounds with moonlight. Also. There are those photographers that if if there are any clouds in the sky, you know, they stay in bed. <laughs> uh, clouds, the appearance of clouds in the sky obscuring part of the Milky Way is is one of the most interesting thing. The glow that they add to the stars, uh, the mystery, the blocking part of the of the stars and the core of the Milky Way. At where it's peekabooing out, that adds excitement, the unknown. So I agree with Alex in in many ways, and that's what uh, really changes things up. Also, David King in our conference is is talking about you know there's more to the Milky Way than the core. I mean, you know the. We, we have so many nightscape photographers talk about, well, you know, the Milky Way season is over. <laughs> All right. I hate that. It's like, no, it's oh, not. It's it. still there. <laughs> I mean, the Milky Way is there the whole year. Yeah, the core in the, the core is missing, but there's more to the Milky Way than the core. Come on, guys. In fact, David Kingham's, one of his programs, the whole thing is about winter is his favorite time to photograph the night sky. And so uh, in many ways, I very much agree with, with Alex. And so that's the way we can mix things up. Um, you know, shoot when the clouds are out, shoot when the moon is out, uh, shoot in the winter, not just in the summer and the spring and the early fall. And really get creative with your foregrounds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I agree. It's uh, I think there's lots of ways to kind of spice it up. Um, and I, I feel like the longer you've been doing night photography, the more you kind of force yourself to do that because you start to get bored with the same old, you know, composition where you know the upper third is all Milky Way and 
all that fun stuff. And I agree with, you know, David, like in the winter, the Milky Way can do some really interesting things. And the typically, I don't know what your experience is in Utah, but in Colorado, it's, I feel like for whatever reason in the winter, there's a lot clearer and crisper um, views of the night sky, which makes it interesting. And then um, I totally agree with, you know, shooting when the moon is out. Some of one of my absolute favorite outings was in uh, Bistai Badlands uh, about mm, three years ago now. And uh, it was like a quarter moon. So I was actually able to get the Milky Way and the moon rising at the same exact time. And then, you know, the whole foreground was just kind of glowing with that kind of orange moonlight, which, you know, caused by some, you know, atmospheric distortion and things of that nature. But it was a really fun night to shoot. So I agree. I think all of those things can really add to kind of your creative toolbox to to shoot the night sky. <laughs> yeah, we, we really have to change things up because it can be boring. You know, in the beginning, uh, my typical rule of thumb was two-thirds sky, one-third foreground because, <laughs> you know, the, the Milky Way was so new to me that I wanted it to be the main subject. Right. And now... You know, now I'm shooting less sky and more foreground in some of my shots because it's not that I'm getting bored with the Milky Way or the night sky. It's that the foreground can be a, a, a greater part of the composition and be interesting because, you know, the newness of, I mean, back in the old days, just getting a, a clean shot of the Milky Way was your main desire. You know, man, if you got that, you, you felt like you're successful. Well, uh, that's not too hard anymore. So let's mix it up. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. <laughs> well, cool, uh, Royce. This has been a lot of fun. Um, kind of wrapping up, I'm curious, who would you recommend uh, be a guest here on the podcast? Well, you've already done Ben uh, Canales, and uh, so – Probably don't need to do that again, but uh, I would get Ryan Smith and Jack Fusco, uh, Mike Shaw. Um, you know, is is kind of an astrophotographer, but he's also a um, a Northern Lights and Aurora Borealis guy. Mm -hmm. uh, he. Uh, He's in charge of the Aurora Summit that takes place around Wisconsin, Michigan, many, many times of the year, usually end of October, November. But he, um, he really is an exciting speaker that uh, kind of brings a lot of different things together in the night sky and helps you understand what is going on. I, I you know, he does more of a basic 101 astronomy for nightscape photographers and tells you why things are happening in the night sky and kind of gives you a big picture. It's it's really an education that uh, that we all need to have if you don't have a good astronomy background. It's not your typical astronomy astronomy class it it's more for photographers hmm. and it, he makes it very exciting interesting cool sweet well th those are great recommendations and um, hopefully i'll be able to do a episode with ryan at the outsiders conference in march so um, are you going to be at that as well i am oh cool yes uh, so and hopefully i'll see you there in person and uh Ryan again, and um, I'm looking forward to meeting up with a, a lot of other uh, cool landscape photographers. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun, and I like it's. I like that it's going to be more focused on kind of networking and you know um, socializing and getting to know people. I think that's an interesting approach, other than like jam packed workshop type stuff. So, well, you know, uh, a lot of people said, well, that you know. March, that isn't a very good time to go out and do landscape photography there in Kanab. <laughs> yes, well, <it> is. <laughs> they purposely did that so that you wouldn't be out there shooting that. And, uh, you know, and that's what we want uh, people. A lot of people say to me on our nightscaper conference format, 
well, this is just mainly daytime stuff. You have optional workshops to go do, but most of the good workshops are before or after the conference. And we said, yeah, that's... That's kind of the point. (laughs) That's kind of the point. Uh, You can still go out and shoot uh, each night if you want to, but you're going to be so sleep deprived, you're not going to get much out of the daytime program. Right. (laughs) That's funny. Come on, guys. (laughs) Well, Royce, this has been a lot of fun, and I'm glad we could finally pull this off. Well, I am too, and it's uh, great speaking with you. Uh, I saw a little bit of excitement on both of our sides on a couple of subjects, and I I hope that carried across to our audience. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. (laughs) Thanks again, man. You're welcome, and uh, good family talking with you, and uh, wish everybody a happy new year. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thanks to Royce for our fun conversation. It was such a pleasure to finally get the chance to talk to you about our mutual passion for night photography. Uh, Royce is offering a discount on his award-winning ebook Milky Way Nightscapes, and he's also offering a $100 discount for podcast listeners looking to attend the Nightscaper Conference in Kanab, Utah this May. Just check out the liner notes for more details. All right, well, let's talk about who's coming up on the podcast. I am really excited to announce some of our upcoming guests and episodes. Next up, we have Jerry Greer, a photographer and book publisher from the Appalachian Mountains. We have Brenda Tharp, a photographer from Sonoma County, California. We have Toby Harriman, a aerial and commercial photographer living in Alaska and San Francisco. Michael Strickland, a film photographer specializing in panoramic images. Nikki Rausch, a sales coach. And lastly, Christian Fletcher, a photographer from Australia. I'm also getting really excited um, heading out in a couple of weeks to the Out of Yosemite Conference where I will be instructing side by side with lots of really amazing photographers. It looks like uh, I'm going to be teaching with Alex Noriega and Michael Shane Bloom, which I'm really excited for. And I'm also going to be recording some panel episodes for the podcast, as well as hopefully some one-on-one uh, podcasts with uh, both both instructors and guests of the of the conference so hoping to share those with you guys soon all right well that's all for now thanks for stopping in collaborating with us and listening see you next week